Well, church, I am very excited and appreciative of the opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I, the text that I'm going to be preaching from this morning, I actually just got to uh, do a project on in, in one of my classes, so it's fresh on my mind. I've enjoyed kind of looking through it, and I'm really looking forward to preaching from this text uh, this morning. So I have a, a question that I want to start us off with, and that is, did anyone here, and I, I need participation. Participation is required. It is mandatory right now, so you didn't sign up for that. You didn't know about it. Too bad. I'm sorry. Did anybody get here this morning by jogging or biking or walking? Did anybody get themselves here in that manner? Show of hands. Anybody? Anybody jog, bike? That's what I thought. Everyone came here in a vehicle, a car, van, truck. I don't know if anybody flew in this morning. I didn't see any planes in the parking lot, so I'm going to assume we're, we're, we're stay, sticking on the ground. And so what happened then and I'm going to include the, the children's building in this, this figure that I'm about to give you. What, what that then means is, or at least most likely, is that half of everyone on campus this morning uh, did not actually drive the vehicle that they came in. They were a passenger in the car, right? That, that seems fair. That seems accurate. Well, so, if you were the passenger then what that means is you are placing your trust in the driver of the car to get you here safely, right? That's what, that's what happens when you buckle up in the passenger seat. And now if you drove this morning, well, then you still know what it's like to be a passenger in a car. You have in the past and you will in the future. You will be the passenger and you will be entrusting your care and your safety to the person who is driving the car. So... This is what I need from you right now. Remember, participation is required. It's mandatory. You didn't sign up for it, and I don't care. Right now, I want you to put yourself in the passenger seat of a car. You can buckle in if you want. That, that's not mandatory, but if you want to go, thank you, Stephen Simmons. You are now in the passenger seat of a car. You are bebopping down the road. Your driver is getting you where you need to be. Everything is going great. You can trust your driver that they are going to get you where you need to be safely. Even if you're in an Uber, because we all know you're not getting in an Uber unless they have a good rating. So you are trusting your driver to get you where, they, where, where it is that you need to go. But their phone starts to buzz. Maybe, you know, their phone is probably sitting right, right over here in the center console, and so that phone starts to buzz, and it buzzes again, and it buzzes again, and it buzzes again, text message after text message after text message. And so, let's be honest, we all know what happens there. Driver goes from here, fixated on the road, to here. Because they want to know, why is my phone blowing up? Is it an emergency? This group chat that I'm in, is something important happening that I need to know about? Is the student minister at the church blowing up my phone with a novel's worth of information about upcoming events? None of you know what that's like, but I'm sure people at other churches do. You, you, probably, you probably didn't put much thought into the fact that you were entrusting your safety to the driver until that moment. In that moment, it became abundantly clear to you, oh no, my life is in this person's hands, and their hands are on the steering wheel, but their eyes are on their phone. They, though they should have, 
recognized that my safety was in their hands, that I was responsible for them. In that moment, it's obvious they're not thinking about it. They're not really concerned with your safety. That is not foremost on their minds. So in the text that we're looking at this morning, we see that Paul wanted Timothy to understand that he was responsible for the care and for the safety of the church at Ephesus. It's likely that Timothy was serving as an elder in the church. He was probably the lead pastor, perhaps the lead teaching elder in the church at Ephesus. And so being there and in that role, Paul had left him to address false teaching that had arisen in and around the church. We know that because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I mean, just the very first verse, once we get out of the greeting, Paul is like, hey, Timothy... I left you there while I, was in Mas- while I went to Macedonia to deal with this. So in 1 Timothy 1, we learn that there were some who wanted to teach the law. They were, or it was maybe just one individual who was a Judaizer, uh, who didn't know, Paul says, what it was they were talking about. Paul refers to them as certain persons, so it seems likely that Paul probably knew who they were, and it's very possible that this was an elder in the church that was teaching this doctrine, this false doctrine. Well, then in 1 Timothy 4, Paul brings them back up again, saying that some taught self-denial. They forbade marriage, and they forbade the eating of certain foods, which Paul says these things were given by God as good and gracious gifts. Uh, Then in 1 Timothy 6, we see that they taught a doctrine that didn't agree with the sound words of Christ Jesus, that they were conceited, that they understood nothing, and that they had an unhealthy craving for controversy. So, Paul charges Timothy, I want you to deal with that, but I also want you to teach the church about the true change that happens in the life of someone who has repented of their sins and is trusting in the gospel. What change brings is brought on by the gospel? So, for Timothy to be uh, faithful to the work that was required of him, it would then be necessary that he devote himself to preaching the scriptures rightly and to modeling obedience. And in so doing, his life and his teaching would stand in stark contrast to that of the false teachers there in Ephesus. And so, of course, what we need to see this morning is that if this was true of Timothy, what we're going to see is that this is, of course, true of any pastor in all times and in all places. Like I said, I hope that we see that in the text this morning. And so that being so, if that is true of pastors in all times and in all places, then what I think we must do is wrap our minds around what those expectations truly are and then evaluate the expectations that we have of pastors in light of the Scriptures. So our passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there are several things that I want us to see in the text this morning, the first of them being that faithful believers 
look to faithful pastors to model godliness for them. So backing up a little bit before we move forward, verse 11, Paul has told Timothy to command and teach these things. Well, the question that should bring up in our minds is, well, what things, Paul? So if we go back a few verses more, we would see that what Timothy was to do is that he was to teach the church the eternal value of living a godly life, the eternal value of training themselves in godliness. He says that believers toil and they strive to live a godly life, all the while looking to the hope that they have in Christ Jesus. So that's what Timothy was to put before the church. That, was, that is what he was to command and teach the church. But as we see in verse 12, Paul saw uh, some potential problems for Timothy because of his age. So the general consensus, most people believe, is that, that Timothy was under the age of 40, most likely in his early to mid-30s. And so what that meant uh, was that he would have been classified as a youth. The Greek schemes for classifying ages meant that anyone who was under the age of 40 was a youth. So not only was it most likely that Timothy uh, was classified as a youth, but being the age that he was it is probably right to assume that Timothy was, under, was younger than Paul. I think we can clearly say that he was younger than Paul. And it's most likely that he was also younger than any of the other elders that were at the church in Ephesus. So Timothy was young through and through. And so because of his age, it seems that Paul thought that there would be some in the church who might try to reject him and might reject his pastoral authority, attempting to discredit him because of his age. But what we need to understand when Paul is saying, let no one look down on you for your youth, Paul is not telling Timothy, what I want you to do, Timothy, is dig in your hills. And when anyone tries to tell you that you can't do what I've asked you to do because you are young, I need you to argue with them. I need you to confront them. I mean, okay, so I'm 30. If I had gotten up here this morning and the first thing that I did is I said, I am 30, but you should listen to me anyways. What's the first thing that y'all would do? Stop listening. You wouldn't listen to me. So Paul is telling Timothy, don't do that. Don't be a fool. In fact... What he says to Timothy is, yes, do make a defense of yourself. Don't allow anyone to look down on you for your youth, but do it through the way that you live your life. The idea here is, I think, very similar to what Peter says to the churches in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The idea here is, live your life in such a way that should anyone bring an accusation against you, all it does is serves to highlight God's grace in your life and His power to save sinners from their sins. So what Timothy would do, Timothy would do this by living in a way that did not allow anyone to say that he wasn't old enough to handle the assignment given to him or to discredit him, uh, the, discredit the things that he taught by living out godliness before them. His maturity would be shown through the way that he lived his life. But not only that, he would also be serving to discredit those who were teaching false doctrine there in the church. We noted earlier 
that the false teacher or false teachers, they craved controversy and they quarreled over words. They argued over words. You might say that they were difficult. They were cantankerous. And this was reflected in the way that they spoke. They argued and they fought. There was nothing patient. There was nothing gracious in the way that they spoke to people or dealt with others. And so to counter that, Timothy needed to display wisdom and maturity in all of his speech. And I don't think this is just a reference to his presence in the pulpit and how he presented his sermons. In fact, I don't think it's much of a reference to that at all. I think it's more of a reference to his speech in daily life. He would be gracious towards those who disagreed with him rather than lashing out at them in anger and frustration. He would be patient, gently but firmly, rebuking those who did not look down who did look down on him because of his age he would be encouraging he would build others up instead of constantly tearing people down he would be honest not lying in order to build himself and his ministry up by dishonest means he wouldn't slander he wouldn't gossip he wouldn't be prone to angry outbursts he wouldn't be harsh he would be pure in all of his speech and in this he would set an example for his congregation. He would show them how to live a godly life with their own speech, with how he spoke to others. This went, of course, beyond his speech. And again, what we need to see is that this contrasts the false teachers. We read in 1 Timothy 6 that the false teachers craved controversy. And what that then led to was envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the peoples. They were evil in their motivations. They were evil in the things that they did. And what happens? Evil begets evil. Evil was the result of their teaching amongst those who bought into it. On the other hand, Timothy would not allow himself to get worked up at every challenge. He would be humble, not being proud and allowing himself to feel superior to his people. He would work to promote unity and love amongst people by being reasonable and patient in his dealings with others. He would be generous with his time, making himself available to other people so that he could teach and instruct them in godliness. He would be kind to people. He would be gracious to them and not assume evil motivations in the actions of others. In everything that Timothy did, he would set an example for his congregation, teaching them to be godly in their conduct. He would set an example for them in love, caring deeply for people, putting their needs above his own. He would set an example for them in faith, continuing to follow Jesus no matter what came his way. He would set an example for them in purity. And this is probably most likely a, a specific reference to him being a young man and needing to remain sexually pure. But also, I think, having righteous motivations in all that he did. What we have to see is that Timothy's motivations in not letting people look down on him for his youth was not just for his own sake. In fact, it, it wasn't really for his sake at all. Timothy was to live a godly life because his role as a pastor was to show others how to follow Christ. His role as pastor came with the expectation that he would live as an example of godliness before the church. And so then I think it's right for us to say that if Timothy was expected to provide this example for his church, then every pastor 
in every time and in every place is expected to do the same. This is the standard to which pastors ought to be held, that their lives be an example of godliness. Now, no pastor will do this perfectly. Let's make that clear on the front end. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly modeled godliness for us. Timothy would not be able to uphold this standard. In fact, that seems to be part of Paul's exhortation to Timothy because it seems that Timothy was actually inclined to being timid and shying away from a challenge. Pastors and ministers are human. We sin and we struggle with doubt and fear and anxiety just like anyone else. Pastors need to have their sins atoned for as well. We cannot atone for our sins, much less anyone else's. We are sinners who have been saved solely by grace, solely by faith, solely in Christ alone. But that does not free any pastor from the responsibility to model godliness for his congregation in word and deed. Churches can and should expect their pastors to provide an example of holiness that they can follow. This is clearly Paul's expectation for Timothy. But what if we flipped that around? Because it's most likely that Timothy wasn't just going to read this letter in private and keep it to himself. It's likely that he was going to read this letter uh, to the church. The church would have had access to it. So how would we flip this around and put emphasis on the church? How would the church read it? Would it not read something to the effect of, okay, Timothy, you don't let people look down on you for your youth, but instead set an example uh, of godliness for them. So church, don't you look down on him for his age, but look to him and follow his example of godliness. They needed to watch for faithfulness to God and not place extra-biblical expectations on Timothy. So then, while it is right and good for us to view Paul's instruction to Timothy as expectations for all pastors in all times and in all places, it is then also right for us to see that every church in every time and in every place needs to evaluate our expectations of pastors in light of this text. So let me ask you, what in your mind makes a pastor a good pastor? More specifically, what makes a pastor one that you are willing to follow? Maybe it's experience. You expect pastors to have a certain number of years behind the pulpit before you are willing to follow their leadership. You need them to prove themselves or know that they are proven before you will follow. Maybe they have to hold the specific theological positions in order for you to be willing to follow them. Maybe they need a uh, seminary education, and maybe even then it's a very specific seminary education. Maybe they have to preach a certain way. Let me ask, what are your expectations for pastors? Let's be clear. None of what I just mentioned, none of those are biblical qualifications for a pastor. So if I begin applying my own standards that exist outside the pages of Scripture and refuse to follow the pastor who does not meet my expectations, then I am applying a standard that God does not it's as if I'm saying, perhaps God laid a good foundation, but there is more that a pastor needs to be, and I know better. So I will place that on top. That's what the Pharisees did with the law. Paul lays out 
the biblical qualifications for a pastor in a couple of different places, including just one chapter before in 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 7, where he says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. So overseer, this is pastor, which is an apt description of what a pastor does. He oversees the church, so overseer. Uh, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So outside the instruction that he must be able to teach, all of these qualifications deal with the man's character. But how often do we emphasize things like how engaging the sermons are and how many bottoms they put in the pews? Paul makes it pretty clear, this is not what the church needs. A church needs a pastor who sets an example for the body by how they love their wife, by how they are patient with their children, by how they disciple younger Christians in their humility and in how they persevere in the faith when they suffer. What a church needs is a pastor who points them to Christ Jesus and leads them to him. If a pastor is faithful to what the scriptures says that a good pastor will do, but I make extra-biblical expectations, non-negotiable matters of first importance, then I harm myself. When I do that, what is going to happen is I'm going to overlook the example of godliness that is being set before me, and that's going to show up in my own speech and in my own conduct. I will make comparisons. It'd be so much better if they did it this way. I will complain, I can't believe they did that. But I won't grow in godliness. Of course, while a healthy church has a pastor whose life is a model of godliness, uh, he must also be dedicated to the preaching of God's word. And so I think that's the second thing we draw out of the text, is that faithful believers look to faithful pastors to preach and teach God's word to them. So in verse 13, we see a change in the text. Paul changes his emphasis from Timothy's character to Timothy's teaching. So central to his role of providing leadership at Ephesus was Timothy's preaching and teaching ministry. Paul says to Timothy, All right, brother, until I get back, read the Bible to the church. Give yourself to that task. Read them the Bible. But don't just read it to them. Tell them what it says, Timothy. Preach and teach it to them. Explain the word to them. Teach them sound doctrine. Teach them how to live according to the word. Explain the word. Apply the word. And Timothy, watch your people be shaped by the word of God. His primary focus, the central point of his pastorate, was giving his people the word of God. We see that from the language that Paul uses when he tells Timothy to do this. Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself, give yourself to this task over and over and over again. And why? Why would Timothy do this? Well, Paul's going to tell him in his next letter. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's in the Scriptures that the sovereign God of the universe has revealed Himself to sinful man. It's in the Scriptures that we learn who the God who made all things is. That He's holy, He's pure, He's just, He's righteous, He's merciful. He made us, and so He reigns over us. But we sinned, and we rejected His authority. We learn about that in the Scriptures too. And because of who He is, and because of who we are, and because of our sin against Him, we rightly stand condemned before Him. We deserve judgment. And that's what we're facing. To drink the, every drop of the cup of God's wrath that's stored up against our sins. But instead of giving us what we deserve, Christ Jesus, the sinless Son of God, drained Every drop of God's wrath that was stored up for you and me. He lived the sinless life that we just cannot live. And He deserved all the reward for doing that. But instead what He did was He took the cross on our behalf. He died in our place. And then He rose from the dead. He's returning one day to judge the world. He has His reward And He shares it with us. With those who repent and believe. We learn all about this in the Word of God. But we learn so much more even than that. It's in them that I learn that through repentance and faith in God, not only does He forgive me of my sins, but He adopts me into His family as a child. He makes me an heir. It's in them that I learn how He brings me into His kingdom. He takes me out of the kingdom of darkness. He places me in the kingdom of His beloved Son. He calls me holy and blameless and righteous. He frees me from slavery to sin and makes me a slave to righteousness, which is a good place to be. I can now reject sin. I can pursue righteousness. And it's in the Bible that I learn all of this. It's in the Bible that I learn how to live as a citizen in His kingdom, righteous and holy in Christ. So, of course, Timothy was to be devoted to giving the Word of God to his congregation. And then as we see in verse 14, Timothy was actually good at this. He was gifted at it. Timothy's ability to preach and teach the Word of God had been identified. It had been affirmed. And so, just so we're clear, when we look at verse 14, and it says to you, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given, to, given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Uh, I, I'm quite confident that what Paul uh, does not mean is that he looked at Timothy. Timothy couldn't teach a lick. But he really needed Timothy to be able to teach. And so he gathered up the, the, the elders of the church there and said, All right, guys, this is what we need. We're going to lay hands on Timothy, and we're just going to say, Teach! And we're going to be able to give him that gift. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, they had seen in Timothy that God had gifted him as a pastor and as a teacher. 
Timothy had this ability, so what they did, what they were doing in the laying on of hands was just commissioning him for the work. They appointed him to this role because they saw that he had been gifted by God for the role. So having been gifted by God and commissioned by the church, Timothy needed to be faithful to this task. He needed to preach and teach the word of God. The church needed this from him. They needed him to give them the words of life. And so we need to see this again. I think it's necessary we see this again in light of the false teaching that existed in Ephesus. On the one hand, we mentioned before, you had the works-based person. You had the Judaizer uh, that was teaching that grace comes through works of the law and not by grace. Uh, on the other hand, you had someone, like we mentioned, that was forbidding good things that God had given as a gracious gift, marriage, and food. In both cases, what was happening is the word of God was being distorted and it was being used to bind the conscience of those who listened, pointing them away from the grace and mercy of God that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what we need to see is that Timothy's preaching and teaching was to protect God's people from false doctrine. False teaching points people away from the joy and the contentment that can only be found in God. False teaching leads us to temporary trinkets that have no eternal value, though they promise and boast of great things. So Timothy's role was far more than providing biblical do's and don'ts and just providing a lot of information for his people. Timothy was guarding the people of God by shaping the church according to the Word of God. This is what faithful pastors do when they get up behind the pulpit. They are shaping the vision and direction of the church by pointing people to the joy that they can only have in Christ Jesus. Faithful pastors use the preaching event to teach the church about God and the life that he gives in Christ. This means that what it is meant to do is that it is meant to shape you by the word so that when you do hear false teaching and you will hear false teaching, you have warning bells and sirens that immediately start sounding off that this is not who the God of the Bible is and this is not what life in his kingdom is like. So what gets put before you must then be much more than life hacks or instructions on how to be moral. We're not here to entertain you, to keep you laughing to the point where you walk away unsure of what the Bible actually says, but remembering quite clearly the jokes and the stories. We are here to tell you what God says in His Word. It's the duty of every pastor in every time and at every place to give God's people God's word. Churches need the scriptures, not five steps to repair your marriage or three ways to be a better friend. If pastors are faithful to teach you what God says in his word, those things will come. We just need to give you the word because you need to hear from God. He has a far better word for you than anything we could ever think up to say. Amen. For the believer, the sermon should be the apex of our week. Think about it. The family of faith 
has gathered together to hear the Word of God taught to us. We get to sit and listen to words of instruction from God Himself, from His Word, and be reminded of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. And so having been instructed from God's Word, we are then sent out to make much of Christ wherever it is that we go. And I certainly don't mean this to diminish our personal reading times, our our quiet times. Pastors don't have special insider knowledge that only they have access to because of the office that they hold. The Spirit of God illuminates the truth of Scripture both for pastor and for layperson. In fact, you don't get anything out of the preaching event just because a pastor said it, but it's because the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth of His Word both in what is being spoken through the pastor. We don't know what in the world to say if the Spirit doesn't make it clear to us in the Word. And it doesn't make sense to any of us unless the Spirit makes it clear for us. So we should all be devoted to reading and seeking to understand the Scripture. But I do want, I want you to ask yourself, do I sense the weightiness of the weekly preaching event? Paul clearly understood this and wanted Timothy to sense this and wanted him to act accordingly. Timothy needed to feel this and as a result be devoted to giving his people the word, God's word. A pastor's preaching and teaching ministry is a labor of love for God and his word, but also for the church. Faithful pastors give their churches the word because it is what brings the church to spiritual maturity. The Spirit works in the hearts of man through the preached word of God. The word is what we all need. And so what we all need are pastors who will faithfully unpack sound doctrine for us, who protect us from wolves, the false teachers who masquerade as pastors, but only want to do harm to the sheep. If I sense the weightiness of this, then it begs the question, do I devote myself to being where I know that myself and my family will be taught the Scriptures, the very Word of God? Will I move heaven and earth to be where I need to be, to hear the Word of God faithfully uh, taught for me? Or do I instead look for specific programmings or other things that matter more to me? There's one last thing that I think we need to see in the text, and what I think it serves to do is that it brings together why we must desire a pastor who models faithfulness to God before us and who faithfully delivers the Word of God to us. And that is that faithful believers follow faithful pastors because it is for their good. So Paul tells Timothy that he needed to immerse himself in modeling godliness and he needed to immerse himself in teaching the scriptures so that as he grew and matured, the power and grace of God would be evident by the progress that he made. His people would see it, and because they would see his growth in his own understanding of the word, and this would be evident to them in his teaching, and his growing in obedience would be obvious in the godly life that he lived before them. But, but here, here's the real heart of the matter. In verse 16, we see that as Timothy kept a close watch on himself, making sure both his conduct and his teaching were consistent with the Scriptures, he would save himself 
and his hearers. Salvation would be the end result of his persistence in faithfully pastoring the church at Ephesus. Does that mean that Paul is saying that Timothy would be saved by his good works? Is Paul saying that his hearers would be saved if they then did the good works that they saw Timothy doing? No. Paul is not suggesting that at all. Paul was telling Timothy he would be saved if he endured in faithful obedience to Christ Jesus. His congregation would be saved as they learned from Timothy how to endure in obedience to God. I receive salvation and the forgiveness of sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The evidence of my salvation, the evidence that my sins have been forgiven, and the guarantee of my eternal life is my sustained obedience to Christ, however. Jesus himself said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our love for God is most clearly seen in our perseverance, both in pleasant times and in difficulty. Anyone can do good works for a short period of time, even for a number of years, but true love for God shows itself in persevering for a lifetime. And we persevere in godliness when God is our joy and our satisfaction, and we want more and more of Him. Faithful pastors teach us what this looks like by opening up the Bible and telling us what God says in His Word. Faithful pastors show us what this looks like by living a godly life in plain sight of the church. Again, no pastor will ever do these things perfectly. So thank God for His grace that overcomes the weakness of pastors. But these are the things that a faithful pastor is striving after and what he is working hard to be for his congregation. And that's because the stakes are so incredibly high. Salvation is what is on the line. We need to understand that pastors are charged by God with caring for God's people. They are under-shepherds who are tasked by the chief shepherd, by the good shepherd, with guarding his sheep. They are supposed to protect the sheep from the wolves who want to get into the pen and do harm. They are supposed to lead the sheep toward the pastures where they will enjoy the goodness of God because they are leading them to God and to the cross of Jesus Christ. In everything, they are readying the sheep for their chief shepherd the good shepherd, who called them and they came. When you join a church, you are the pastor who trusts the driver to get them where they are going safely. In joining a church body, you are entrusting the care of your soul to the pastor of that church. He is responsible for delivering me safely where I need to go, that being the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 17 makes this clear for us when it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. It's probably worth pointing out that though we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, we know that it was likely a sermonic letter that was presented to a congregation as a sermon. So again, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All pastors, faithful or not, from all times and all places, will stand before God Almighty and have to give an account for how they cared for the people in their church. We ought to then consider that before we place our own expectations on a pastor. Because none of us will judge more accurately or more justly than God Almighty. And faithful pastors understand this. So they strive to put before their people an example of godliness and to shape the church that God has entrusted to them by His Word. And the church should want them to do this with joy. Why? Because the Word says it is for the good of those who are in church. It is for the good and well-being of the church that when her pastor perseveres in rightly leading her. And so because of this, first I want to address our high school students and our, our college students. Unfortunately, you guys congregate together and the students scatter about, so attention here. You're going to graduate in the next few years, and most likely, you're going to move somewhere else. And so it's my hope, and I'm sure this church's hope and expectation, that all of our students that move off, you're going to seek out a church to join uh, wherever it is that the Lord should take you, wherever it is that you end up. And so when you get there, let me ask you, what are you going to be searching for? What kind of questions are you going to be asking? Are you going to be looking for a church that has engaging worship? Are you going to be looking for a church that has a dynamic speaker? Are you going to be looking for an active college ministry or are you going to be looking for an active young adult ministry? Let me implore you. Those things should not be what determines what church body you join. Ask better questions. Does this pastor model faithfulness and holiness to his congregation? Does he set that model before him, before them? Does he faithfully preach and teach the scriptures to his church, explaining and applying the word of God to them. Ask the question, will I be discipled there? Will I be equipped to teach other people the glorious news of Christ Jesus and to show them how to follow Him faithfully? And now for all of us, I hope that we see the importance that this text places on living a godly life and knowing the Word. How intimately related these two things are. It isn't just for pastors to know the Scriptures and be a model of godliness. Mothers and fathers need to be that for their children. Your children need that from you. Older believers need that, need to be that for younger believers. Younger believers need that from you. You need to be that for the lost person in your classroom or in your office. The lost person that you're around every day needs you to model godliness and to teach them what the Word of God says. Tell them the gospel. But pastors are tasked with the role of first modeling that for the church. Teaching the church to be like her Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. We need faithful pastors. The church desperately needs faithful pastors. And the scriptures show us that it is to our harm to be without one. Recognizing that must then mean that the church takes what is modeled for her, what she is taught, and does it, applies it. But it's not just about doing what you see done or what you are taught to do. 
Recognizing the need for faithful pastors means that churches should devote themselves to praying for their pastors. Believers should pray fervently for the man or the men who will give an account for his care of your soul. Pray that he perseveres in godliness, that he gives the church an example of obedience that she can follow. Pray that he perseveres in private study of the word and prayer, staying humble and acknowledging his dependence upon the Lord. Pray that he perseveres when tempted to sin, and that he perseveres when he is tempted with doubt and with fear and with anxiety. Pray that he is wise to know the needs of the congregation and doesn't shy away from addressing them. It's not good. In fact, it's very tragic when we hear stories of pastors who burn out under the weight of pastoral ministry or who leave because of a moral failure. Even worse are stories of once faithful pastors who turn away from sound doctrine to falsehoods. These things are harmful both to the pastor and God's people. These things are harmful to the witness of the church. So we pray for our pastors that God would be merciful and gracious towards them because we know that as God is being gracious and merciful towards them, He is being gracious and merciful towards the church. And if a church recognizes that it has a faithful pastor, it only makes sense to follow Him where He leads. A faithful pastor leads the church to her Savior, both in His conduct and in his preaching. This is for my good, and so I will trust him to look after my safety as he cares for my soul. Would you pray with me? Oof. Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's your word that shapes us. We thank you that you overcome our shortcomings, that God in Christ, you have forgiven us of our sins, that you have saved us. Lord God, we thank you for the institution of the church. We thank you for the body that you give us to be a part of where we can be encouraged and built up, both by other believers, but Lord, by faithful pastors. We thank you for giving faithful pastors to the church to lead us, to teach us, and to instruct us in holiness and righteousness. God, that we would want more of you, that you, God, would be glorified. And so, Lord, may that be how we respond to your word. May we be filled with greater desires for your glory, seeking you in all things. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.